Welcome to Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble. Two seasons ago, when we were just kicking off, we did an episode on Ernest Hemingway. While Hemingway is most often associated with places such as Key West, Paris, and Cuba, the formative years he spent with his family on Walloon Lake are often overlooked. Hemingway first came to Northern Michigan, aged just barely two months old, in September of 1899. He returned each summer to Walloon, spending at least a portion of each summer, usually the entire summer, until he was 21. It was here in Northern Michigan that he developed a love for the outdoors, fishing, hunting, exploring the surrounding rivers and forests with his friends, and most importantly, developing the sense of adventure he was idolized for throughout his life. Northern Michigan is where he chose to recuperate after being severely wounded in World War I, and it was here in Petoskey, Michigan that he began his career as a writer of fiction during the winter of 1919 and 1920. Hemingway also chose to marry his first wife, Hadley Richardson, often known as the Paris Wife, in Horton Bay, Michigan, just across the lake from where his family's cottage was. Three months after the wedding, the newlyweds moved to Paris with letters of introduction to some of Paris's literary elite, including Ezra Pound, Gertrude Stein, Sylvia Beach of Shakespeare and Company, the famous bookstore in Paris. Two years ago, the village of Walloon dedicated a statue in honor of the Nobel and Pulitzer Award-winning writer and began hosting Hemingway-related events, including a writer workshop slash retreat weekend. And this year, the guest of honor, keynote presenter, was author John Patrick Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway's grandson, who joins us here today. Welcome, John, and how are you recovering after your Wolverine trip to northern Michigan? Well, it's been sort of stop and go in the sense that I had a problem with one of my teeth. I think I got a sort of an infection when I was there in the O'Hare Airport on the way there, so to speak, you know. But that's being treated, and so I'm fine. Well, the, well, these days you need to take out a small loan to even go visit the the dentist, I think. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I was comparing it to Canadian dentists and also to Italians and everything, and it's just insane how much they charge for everything. You know? Yeah, and we're getting, my wife has just gone through extensive dental reconstructive work based on her upbringing in, in uh, sunny Belarus. Um mm-hmm. And my God, uh, yeah, and this guy's a friend of mine, but I, I'm not feeling so, I think I should have charged him a little bit more on the on the ring I sold him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh... Well, you're zooming in from sunny Florida today. Uh, it was 80 degrees when you were here, and I still have a sunburn from our tour that day, but yet it started snowing the day after you left, and it really hasn't st- stopped I think, yeah, left. yesterday I, I, I looked, you know, to see what the weather was like there, and it said, you know, flurries, and I thought, oh, my God. <laughs> It's still coming. In May, no less. Yeah, but I moved uh, to Harbor Springs on May 15th, 2016, and I got a severe sunburn while it was snowing sideways. So this was traditional weather up here. Weird. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was my pleasure to show you around uh, to as many of the spots as we had uh, times for all the Hemingway haunts when you were able during the busy weekend. By the time I met you on that Thursday when you flew in, You'd already been out on the river doing some fly fishing with a local legend around here, Brian Kaz Kosminski. I think you oh, guys, yeah, Kaz. yeah, hit yeah. the on the Boyne River, which is a beautiful stretch over there. That was fun. Uh, is fly fishing something that's a part of your, I guess, re- recreational schedule? Well, you know, I don't really do it that much, although I'd like to start doing it more. We'll see how that goes. 
Yeah, and we'll 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 direct a little bit to that more per our email last night too, because that kind of opens up a whole thing about um, um, you know nature, and and that's something we'll touch upon. Of course, that's something that Hemingway wrote a, a lot about in his in his books. You know, nature was a, a, always the central theme. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm on a few Hemingway Facebook groups. I kind of just I try to monitor and not reply so much because that just starts debate, which is always interesting. So I like watching everybody else. But there were a couple of really cool comments from your Leakside chat we did that evening a couple of weeks ago. And it seems people were much more interested in your responses than were in my questions. So I want you to make sure and feel free to kind of you know talk about what you you want to speak about today too. In a way, it was it was sort of a free ride for me because I didn't have to do all the work. <laughs> you know, in the past, sometimes I would have an interview sort of set up. Other times, I would you know present my book. This is back in the days when I was presenting Strange Tribe, just from notes that I had, and I would, even though I'd done it hundreds of times, I would have to. Well, no, not even though, but because I had done it so many times, I always tried to sort of keep it interesting for for me, principally, mm-hmm. okay, because the people who were coming there to see it, you know, had never seen it before, and so whatever I would come out with, you know, was good for them. There's so much, I mean, in that book, Strange Tribe, to to talk about. You know, I could talk about my dad, I could talk about my grandfather, I could about talk about how they interacted with each other. I could talk about, I could read certain passages which I thought were, you know, pivotal in my life, you know, and then let it go from there. And then, uh, oh, well, of course, you know, Ernest's wives, my dad's wives, you know, how he was treated, that is my dad, how Ernest grew up, you know, and then uh, in part also, you know, how I had to deal with all of, you know, their lives, so to speak, you know. One of our number one uh, followers on this program was there that night for the talk, and he's read your book, and it was, it was, it was overwhelming for him. Uh, he really identified some of the, some of the similarities between his life growing up. Of course, his family wasn't kind of famous. You know, his grandfather wasn't Ernest Hemingway, but he really identified with uh, a lot of the themes in the context of your uh, book. Uh, I have yet to delve into it. I can't wait. It's just been a crazy couple of weeks since you were here. But I'm really looking forward to reading it at a leisurely pace because there are so many different things going on in that and how it must have been for you growing up with that last name. Yeah, it was, uh, it was quite the ride. What I discovered, in fact, promoting the book over the years is that it is a book that transcends just notoriety or being a celebrity or anything like that. I discovered that many people had experienced the same things that I have experienced or that they could see parallels in their lives, maybe between fathers and sons or daughters and fathers or whoever. And then also the number of people who I encountered who were either bipolar or who were married to someone who was bipolar or schizophrenic or whatever. And um, sometimes you know, they themselves, yeah, well, were not, you know, afflicted by that, but they were survivors. And so, of course, you know, when they came up to sort of shake my hand and everything, I knew exactly where they were coming from. You know, it's it's a kind of a an unspoken club that we all belong to, you know, and we, we can recognize almost instantaneously if someone has been through that, you know, it just changes your, your perspective on everything. It's a kind of 
delicacy, I guess, uh, well, delicateness uh, in behavior because of what you've seen, because of what you have lived through. You know? And I just, you know, would try to sort of say, yeah, I know, I know, I know. That's It must have been an interesting or I guess hopefully cathartic process of, of um, sorting all of that out as you were preparing to write the book. Did you feel any closure after you, you published that and then... Um, well, okay, it was nice to be published, but more than anything else, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't praised at the time for any sort of ability in, in writing, okay? I, <laughs> people were, were almost adamant that they were not going to do that, uh, critics, that is. And for me, if anything, it became a kind of giving, my, my giving, continued, uh, continual giving to others through these presentations and the, the number of copies sold and all that sort of stuff really took a back seat. As I say, if, as I told you, Chris, uh, I believe once that had this book been published, you know, in the last two years, instead of in 2007, yeah, the resonance would have been exponentially larger. Right. You know, With today's in every career. sense of the word. But my mission wasn't that. I wasn't destined for that. You know, I was destined to go out and talk to a lot of people and and let them tell their stories in a way too. Well, it's a, maybe I, maybe a more personal was, way of connecting with people. Also, you had the audience that could have just read the book, but then I know that the group up here was quite very interested in and uh, and got a whole different <laughs> of speaking with you. Um, you're very articulate, and uh, our questions kind of ventured off. And so I think it's there's a personal connection also when you're there with somebody in a room versus them reading you, you know your written word. Yeah, I like public speaking. It's it's different. I can I can write, but I can also speak publicly. It's something I discovered you know over time, and it's it's, it's a different art, you could say. And so I try to do my best, and uh, you never know how. A meeting between yourself and the public is going to go. I've how done, they will take it, you know. Yeah, I've done four since you were here, and you never know how it's gonna how it's gonna go. And I'm I'm sitting in a in a radio station right now in the recording studio in high school. I failed radio class. I I could not talk in front of people, and then I wanted to become a musician, <clears> which got me used to being in front of large groups of people. And and now I just I, I get the I get a, a lot of speaking engagements, and uh, it's a, it is a whole different art. And it's very rewarding sometimes. And then, of course, we went into the Zoom years during COVID. I had to get accustomed to speaking to a TV screen with 400 people listening, and that's a whole different dynamic also. That is weird. <laughs> I mean, I have spoken in front of audiences that were three, 400 people at a time. But that, it, was, it gave me almost a sense of being enveloped by this humanity, you know. Mm. But with Zoom, it's, it's never that way, no. You don't know if a joke's going over. You don't know if there, there's. That's you know. it. That's it. That's it. You know, you, you can feel the pulse of, of how you know the uh, of the audience. You know how how they're taking things. You know how they're how they're adjusting to the speaker. You know, is it resonating within them or not? Okay, and it's a sensation. You know, and it, it's transmitted through the air. Almost. Yeah, there's a give and take, right? Yeah, immediate. Absolutely. My wife had a good, uh, a good, nice compliment for you. Uh, she said, "I think I don't even know if that was actually John Hemingway. I think you might have just brought a professional uh, speaker." And the guy was like, a, like an actor. He was so good in front of people. 
<laughs> well, I don't know. I, it's just me talking. You know, I mean, it's I don't know how to act. <laughs> <laughs> I just you know, I just say what I'm going to say. You know. Yeah, and and we'll jump back just a little bit uh, in the in the um, into introduction. Like as I mentioned, uh, Hemingway was first married uh, here in Northern Michigan, 1921. That was the Paris wife Hadley. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, he had he had four marriages. So the family tree broadens a little bit, as we talked about when you were here. Your father was Gregory Hemingway, the youngest of Hemingway's three children, and your grandmother mm-hmm. was Pauline Hemingway's second wife. Yeah, when, Pauline Pfeiffer, that's right. Yeah, Pauline Pfeiffer, yeah. And when did you first become aware that your grandfather was such an iconic, um, not just a writer, but, I mean, he was, if you think of four of the most famous photographs, I think you got Marilyn Monroe with her skirt being blown up, you've got... Ernest Hemingway in a sweater, yeah. James Dean, you know, so he was an yeah. iconic figure uh, that just seems to continue to to resonate with people for, for pros and cons, I guess, you know, back and forth. I, I think it finally initially hit me in my younger teens, and there was tremendous admiration for his writing. But I think I was too young, really, to understand a lot of what he was putting down on paper because, well, in fact, I was just 13 years old, and uh, not very mature. I mean, yes and no, but how are you going to understand something like war, you know, or uh, loss in the sense that he described it? Yeah, I'd experienced some loss and everything. I mean, with my parents getting divorced when I was six and everything, but that was different. And I was really only able to comprehend what he was trying to do later on, you know, when I was in my 20s. Well, I think that's the thing with Hemingway's stories, and we talked about this a little bit, especially the Nick Adams stories. Those, I know a 10-year-old child can read, read those stories and take something from them. You and I can take something differently. And then as we progress in our lives, I go back and reread, especially the short stories. I think that was the art of omission in Hemingway's stories is there is so much going on in those stories that you kind of reinterpret them depending on where you are in your life also with the different yeah. themes that are underlying he does that well, yeah. He did that well. Absolutely. Uh, his writing was stellar. You, know, it's, uh, you can read it so many different times and discover so many different angles to whatever he's writing. It's uh, his, the way he would construct sentences, too, mm-hmm. was uh, very different, very specific, and yet artistic. I mean, he had a, he was creating a painting with words. That's what he was doing. And just like anyone, any two people can look at a painting and see it in different ways. The same thing was true, as you would say, as you were saying, with his short stories. Yeah, one in particular, my wife, uh, we have we have good friends and we'll get a little bit. We, we, you and I visited Marion Sanford uh, mm-hmm. when you were here. And, and Marion was married to Jim Sanford. Jim was uh, Marceline Sanford. Uh, or Marceline Hemingway, the oldest of the siblings, and we spend a lot of time out there. And that's just a couple doors down from from Windermere Cottage, and, and we visited both those places when you were here. And, w- and we'll get back to Windermere in just a second. But one night we were reading the short happy life of uh, Francis McComer, which oh, an incredible <laughs> story that one. Yeah, I love that one. It's fantastic. Well, and she looked at me. and She said, "So what, what the hell just happened at the end?" And uh, I'm like, "Well, I got my perspective, but." Then we went online and Googled. You know, there's probably 4,000 different responses to what's going on at the end of that, that, that story, you know. But at the end, you know, he's, he's got it on a couple of levels there. There's 
the level of him, you know, with gangrene in his leg. And he is at the same time, because he's delirious, imagining himself in this bush plane with the pilot there. And he's going to be taken to the hospital, of course. And at a certain point, he sees the the peak of Kilimanjaro, where they had found at one point this this leopard that was climbing up there, and no one knew why he had ventured way up there because that was not where he normally would hunt. And then the the pilot just turns around to him and sort of points to that, you know, and smiles, and he realizes that it's, it's kind of like the house of God. And at that point, there's a screaming going on because the wife has discovered him dead. Mm-hmm. That is fucking just sends chills down you when you read that book. I mean, that is an amazing piece of work. Whoa. <laughs> Jesus. You know, it's, it's like I was telling you, you know, when someone does something really good and you're a writer, if you know anything about writing, all you can just do is say chapeau. You've done it. You know, you know it at that moment. You know it. You know, and that is a gift to everyone. And Hemingway does that sometimes too, like you mentioned. He telescopes into something. He just goes, Vroom. yeah, yeah, yeah just it comes you at you right into it. You know, and it's it's like, oh my god, he's he had that ability to blow you away. Yeah, he takes my. There's there certain captions, especially in, in moments in life where. You'll read something that just take it just takes your breath away. You, you identify with it so much, and that's why I think Hemingway is often accredited so much for uh, how much he can capture uh, love, life, loss, and nature. But for me, he he captures that human element, the human condition that we all deal with. We, we we've dealt with it for years, and we're going to keep fighting that. Like you said, you know, hopefully the majority of us become survivors. But I think he captures that you know, man versus man, man views versus nature. But he does it just in a just a such a spectacular way that we we all identify with i think not all of us but those who appreciate hemingway and then come back to him you know sometimes we leave for a little while and go to different writers but man we really noticed there was something very special going on and it's it's been a hundred years now you know some of these things are starting to hit the public domain now it's 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 amazing yeah i'm going to tread lightly here you know utmost respect like i mentioned the last time uh, but i think it, it really goes back to your book strange tribe um starting with Ernest mother grace and continuing for, for generations now, multiple members of the Hemingway family have been involved in the arts. Musicians, painters, sculptors, writers, actresses, and several biographies have been written that along with all that cre- creativity, there's also been an unfortunate history of, of mental illness throughout the family, which, good God, you know, you've, you've witnessed and we'll hear your perspective on that. And that, and that starts going back with Clarence. Uh, he had what were, what were, he would take what, what were called nervous vacations where he'd, he'd go, go down to the, to the mountains and the Smoky Mountains and just get away from the family and try to find himself. And that's something we talked about the other night too is nature. You know, he, he suffered from depression. Yeah. So a clinical depression, I'd say. I would say so too. <clears throat> and back, back then these things were so hard to, to diagnose and some people, it wasn't talked about like it is now. No, you just sort of dealt with it, or you you called it, you described it as Ernest described it as his black ass periods, you know. Yep, and he would go through those through those bouts of depression, and he'd try medicating it with alcohol, which does not help at all. No, quick fix. <laughs> it makes it worse, if anything, you know. Yep. But 
what else is he going to do? That sense of humor, okay? People were, oh, we were talking about this when I was there in Michigan, okay, that one morning with the letters and everything. And we were saying that, you know, in his writing, was it was always so severe in a way, but in his letters, he could be extremely humorous. And I, and I think that was necessary for him. For so many of us, look at how many comedians are actually, you know, really suffering mm -hmm. from internal turmoil. Look at Robin Williams, for instance. Um, you know, you're, you, what a great way to battle depression. And yeah, I know I do it. I joke more when I'm in a, in a stressed mood. And I've got my ups and downs, you know, through life and stuff. But I try to combat that with humor. I think that it is, it is a, it's a great defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. People always often forget too how humorous Hemingway was. I mean, there's there's lines that he'll throw in there all of a sudden just are hilarious, you know, and they're not even necessarily the the story would be fine without those little little bits. Yeah, no, no that's uh, <laughs> yeah, that's good. He had to do that. Had to do that. Now, uh, um, your family history. Your your father Gregory was diagnosed as bipolar, and I think when you were here, you were telling me that at one point they they diagnosed him as being a paranoid schizophrenic. That was before they called it bipolar disorder or bipolar syndrome or whatever. Okay, because they really didn't you know have a handle on what was going on there, and I think perhaps it was only with the discovery of, of lithium that they were able to to see how the average bipolar person works you know and also you know it's some people think of it as a disease other people think of it as a gift in many cases because when you are not you know psychotically manic okay you have this tremendous energy uh, creativity everything that you try to do is so much easier in that period and i've heard of other people writers you know who are bipolar and maybe they would say you know to their companion oh please just let me stay off my medication a little bit because i want to get this chapter done or i want to get this i need to get this book done you know what a what a paradox that's that's, that's incredible. yeah and yeah. the companion is there oh <laughs> Fuck no, yeah. <laughs> you're not going to go into some sort of, you know, psychotic period, you know, <laughs> I'm going to be the one who's going to have to pay for that and pick up the pieces, you know? Yeah. And it, I, I recently uh, went to, went to Amsterdam and you go to the, uh, the Van Gogh museum and whatever he was suffering with, but he went in those manic phases and my God, the body of his work was done in just a couple of short years. And, and some of those paintings that he was doing in just a matter of days, there's hundreds of thousands of strokes creating yeah. these, these works of art, these timeless pieces of art. Yeah. It's um, hard it's to imagine. It's kind of a su super energy without a doubt, but I, it, it takes its toll. I mean, you saw how quickly my grandfather aged, you know, when he was 60, he was, you've seen pictures, you know, towards the end, he's standing there. He was a tall man, you know, about six foot at least, but he was gaunt, you know, and his, his hair was all white and, you know, the color had almost, and, and this was a person who, well, no, towards the end there in Idaho, he wasn't down there in the tropics and everything. So he didn't have that perpetual tan, you know, but I was, I was shocked, you know, when I, when I saw those pictures and the first time I saw them was at the Hemingway conference in Milano and uh, Stresa 
you know, Laga Maggiore. And uh, I was just like, wow, what happened here? And, I, and then I, it hit me. I said, you know, this is because he gave everything to his work and then some, you know. That last picture I have of him, he's he's barely 60 years old. And you would, yeah. he looks like a Civil I mean, look, War look, general. Look at me. I am now going to be 63. But, you know, I, genetically speaking, dodged those bullets, you know, of bipolar syndrome and um, schizophrenia that my mother had and everything. And looked, yeah, he paid a price. He paid a big price for that. Yeah, he did. He lived a hard, fast life, too. You know, in addition to that, too, I always like to try to remember or remind people, I guess, that that along with all that creativity and the, and the struggles that he had, man, he, he he found some good times in, in between there. He lived a pretty fast and full life. Too. Oh, yeah. No, he went hunting. He was fishing. Uh, he was you know, going to the fiesta there in Pamplona, you know, and uh, the corrida all that sort of stuff, you know, that he loved drinking a lot. <laughs> okay. You know, he, I mean, yeah, he knew he had problems and everything and uh, he would, you know, take his blood pressure, look at his weight, all this sort of stuff. And they would have various doctors there in Havana would come and prescribe this or that. And in my opinion, it was probably just a bit like, you know, these con men who would come by with this magic exilier that's going to give you youth and everything else, you know. Uh, I, I don't think they really helped him much because they didn't know how to help someone like him. How are you going to help someone like him? Yeah, really. Yeah, your stepmother, um, Valerie Hemingway, has been here before, and we've talked quite a bit. And she was there, you know, during some of those 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 years in Cuba at the end. Mm-hmm. And she said it was almost kind of kind of not humorous, but to watch the the, the Hemingway's doctor would come over and, and again they do the weight check and the the blood pressure check and then. Uh, he'd declare him, uh, you're, you're good for a couple couple tonight. You can go ahead and have a couple of drinks tonight. You know, I think I think you'll know, <laughs> be all right. <laughs> there, was, there, there was no sort of, you know, homeopathic sort of, you know, way of looking at things, uh, holistic, okay? No, oh, no, no, you're here in Cuba. Everyone drinks, go for it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Valerie, also, Valerie also said that she goes, well, I grew up in Ireland, so I didn't even think he drank that much. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Valerie's been known to have a few herself. Yeah. <laughs> Now you mentioned a minute, a minute ago your mother. So in addition to your father uh, being bipolar, uh, your your mother was schizophrenic. Yeah, she was. Yeah, so definitely. That, that's got to just create a, 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 you know, what a what a dynamic a home life for you at that period. Um, what what was what was like like just a, a little a little bit of you know, with your with your father and your and your mother <clears> the <throat> interactions and and you being a young. I, I remember, Chris. Once uh, I was invited to uh, speak. Uh, in uh, PEI, Prince Edward Island, Charlottetown, at the Atlantic Psychiatric Conference, which was um, a Canadian organization of uh, psychiatrists and psychiatric nurses. And so they invited me to speak about my book, considering the kind of illnesses that uh, populate a good part of the book. And when they asked me about my mother, you know, I said, you know, well, that's kind of difficult for me. And uh, I told him, and I said, this is the first time I've ever mentioned this to anyone, but it was it was difficult, really, to relate to her, say, the way I related to, to my dad, because as someone who was schizophrenic, she had this kind of mask. And immediately out there in the crowd, you could see people just going, you know, because they knew what that was like, you know, and um, 
Yeah, that was very strange. I mean, she was very intelligent, uh, was a better pre-med student than say my dad was, okay. She was the kind of person who could A's in organic chemistry, you know, and it was no, no problem. She was also a gifted artist, had seen some of her paintings. They were amazing, you know. So she... But again, there, she, she heard voices and she was always feeling persecuted and we had to keep moving from one place to the next, you know. And, uh, and so it gave me this feeling of rootlessness. You know, I, I just wasn't, <clears throat> yeah, I was born and raised in Miami, but not staying in one particular, you know, residence or house or whatever for any length of time. And that only changed when uh, she uh, went off the deep end one of the many times. And I had to go <clears throat> live with uh, Ernest's brother, Lester. And I stayed there for four years and I felt, you know, relatively safe. But then even then, after those four years, uh, I was sent off to live with my dad. <laughs> so it was like I was stepping out of the fryer into the frying pan, you know. And then they put me in a boarding school and I was happy to be there. A lot of kids hated it, but I was like, wow, you know. A little bit of stability finally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but then after that, I ended up going to UCLA and staying with my mom, okay, because she was out there. My dad wanted to save on tuition or boarding or whatever, you know, so he had me stay in the apartment with her. And that was weird too. And this might be personal, but... um. Hemingway was always paranoid about finances and things like that. Uh, when he when he passed away, I, I saw a letter private, maybe a month previously when he passed away. He was he was worried about having enough food in the freezer, uh, living off fish and 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 um, uh, some game they had they had stored. He he left quite a bit of money behind. Um, and now he disinherited all three of the siblings. Is that correct? He was. Pretty close to doing it, and it was basically my dad who did some research, legal research into copyright and everything, and found out that that couldn't be done. And, uh, you know, Mary was ready to take everything. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> and they challenged her. And, uh, in fact, she had to share it with them. I had not heard that perspective. I guess, I, again, without being too personal, I, just, I was wondering, amidst all the other turmoil you're kind of going around, living living within with your parents and, 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 and bouncing around, you mentioned going to a private boarding school. Uh, there, there were some family funds there. There was some stability as far as financial stability uh, when, you were, when you were growing up. Well, okay. Uh, my dad had money, okay, but he pretended he didn't, I think, at times. And uh, I know that, for instance, uh, most of the first year, my uncle Pat was paying for it, but he was threatening not to, okay, if Greg didn't, you know, get off his ass and sort of you know, <laughs> settle it, okay, with Canterbury. And yeah, that was, that was the craziest sort of stuff, you know. John, Ernest Hemingway's short stories, in my opinion, uh, easily eclipsed his, his longer novels. And our format allows for like 20 or 30 minutes. Uh, can we invite you back for another episode to continue our discussion? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm for, here. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of Tales of Northern Michigan's Past. I'm your host, Christopher Struble, and you are invited to join us next time with more from author John Patrick Hemingway.